All right, there, we're up and running. So let's say a blessing for studying Torah. And then I have so much, I'm, I had such a great time studying the portion this morning. I'll get as much of it across to you and hear your thoughts as well. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kichana b'mitzvotav etzibanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, creator of the universe, who makes us sacred with your commandments and has commanded us to engage in words of Torah. So before um, I start talking about the Torah portion, today is Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israeli Independence Day. And so Israel is 74 years old today. Incredible. So I just want to say um, one quick thing on that note, which is that however these things work out, the modern, the very, very newest Jewish holidays um, make an incredible arc of experience as they mark modern Jewish history. You know, Yom HaShoah, which uh, fell last week and we, we read about the Rabbi Kalanimus, Kalman Kalanimus Shapira, uh, Yom HaShoah got established a week before, for the day that is a week before Israeli Independence Day. How that happened, I've talked about in the past, it seems to be accidental. I mean, it was such a haphazard and kind of uh, a political process. Um, and, um, uh, but there it is. It falls a week before Yom Ha'atzma'ut. So in this modern arc of, 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 of um, ritualized remembering, we mark the Holocaust and the, both the victims and the resistors. And then yesterday was Yom Hazikaron, which is Israel's Memorial Day which was consciously established as the day before Israeli Independence Day. So we follow the arc from the Holocaust to those who fell in battle, defending and creating Israel. And then today we celebrate Israel's independence. And it's, it's powerful. And it fascinates me from, a, again, that kind of liturgical standpoint, how Passover, leads to Shavuot, you know, in the, again, in the, in the sacred memory of the people where we liberate from slavery and then we reach Mount Sinai and enter into covenant as a people. How Tisha B'Av, which is in the middle of the summer and marks the destruction of the temple, leads in seven weeks to Rosh Hashanah and renewal. Each, there, so, uh, Journeying through the Jewish year, as I've taught many times, is a journey through sacred memory and the most recent ritualized memories that we mark are the memories of our 20th century history of near destruction, sacrifice and rebirth as a free people in our own land. And so that's very meaningful to me. Um, with without any any interest or need to launch into politics. Uh, um, I just want to note that the day is that day. Um, okay, 
So this Torah portion is Kedoshim. Oh, and Joan wrote it Cinco de Mayo. Another day for celebration, for another sacred remembering of another culture. Kedoshim means holiness. And it is chapter 19 and 20 of the book of Leviticus. And the first 18 verses of Parshat Kedoshim are known, are, are among the most important, most central of Jewish um, law and morality comparable to the Ten Commandments. Those 19 verses begin, you shall be holy for I, yod Vavhe, am holy. And then it describes what behaviors will engender holiness amongst the community. I'm sure we talked about this last year and the year before, and I'm actually going to take a different angle on it today, but I wanna orient us all. Uh, and those amazing instructions climax in verse 18 with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am yod Vavhe, your God. So that kind of, those verses are, are it's, it's amazing. It's deep because the previous verses describe what it means to choose to love your neighbor, right? And love there is a transitive verb. It's not a feeling verb. It's v'ahavta l'reecha kamocha. You shall love to your neighbor. You shall enact love towards your neighbor as you would want towards yourself, which then of course becomes in reformulated as do unto others as you would want them do unto you. That's why it gets rendered that way in the time of the rabbis, in the time of Jesus, um, when Jesus rephrases it. It's because v'ahavta l'reach is transitive, do unto. But today, rather than go through those verses again, which I've done many times and I never tire of, I want to turn to uh, a more global, uh, global is not the right word, a, a larger um, um, lens to look at it in, which we've also talked about before and I've written about, but I hadn't applied to these verses. And that is that you can't understand the book of Leviticus if you read it as a, um, um, as a linear instruction, set of instructions, because you'll go nuts. There's, there's nothing. Let me read you the verse that comes after love your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to know what I'm talking about. So here we are, the climax, love your neighbor as yourself. I am yod Vavhe. Then the next verse says, you shall not let your cattle mate with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. And you shall not put on clothing from a mixture of two kinds of material. Okay, like that's a come down, right? If we're expecting continued high flying, 
you know, the most elevated moral uh, description. And so it took me many years until I discovered, and we've studied over the years, the work of Mary Douglas, who was a um, uh, world famous anthropologist who took a huge interest in the book of Leviticus. And I write about this in my book, in my first entry under Vayikra. So if you wanna learn more about it, you can actually read that. Uh, and she approached the text both literarily and anthropologically and said, the, pro the reason we don't understand this text and it feels so utterly random to us is that it's not written for a linear exposition. It's written analogically. In other words, it's written in the form of analogies. The human body is analogous to the community. The community and the human body are analogous to the land. Um, the human body and the human collective and the, the land are analogous to the cosmic order. And so if you can start wrapping your mind, no, not wrapping, if you can start rebooting your perception to not expect a coordinated outline, okay, ethics, one, one A, one B, but rather a, um, here, here's how, um, here's how Ellen Davis, this author I'm going to quote share with you said, the priestly tradition, meaning the author of the book of Leviticus, speaks not the language of the discursive intellect, but rather that of the embodied imagination. I thought that was a great phrase. The priestly tradition speaks not the language of the discursive intellect, but rather that of the embodied imagination. That comes from this book, which I read on vacation. Otherwise, I don't think I'd ever been able to, which I showed you a few weeks ago called Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture by Ellen Davis. And um, it's called An Agrarian Reading of the Bible. So the, uh, the modern agrarians led by Wendell Berry and Aldo Leopold and other great thinkers and writers of our time want us to reclaim the awareness that many indigenous traditions have as their foundation, but which we have lost due to in the industrial mindset, the capitalist industrial mindset, which is all about extracting value from the inanimate world. Right, that's the world we live in. That's the mind, that's the reality map that are, has allowed us as a, as, a, as a species now to extract astonishing wealth from, the, from our planet and from the labors of others. And from, in other words, we, are, we exploit the resources available to us in order to accumulate wealth. That's right. That's our system. But in the industrial era, because of our increased capacity to do that, we, have, we are actually undermining the very ground that su supports us, right? So we are endangering 
our existence and our planet's existence because of that mindset. Agrarianism is an attempt to return to an understanding of our lives as being embedded in um, interactive systems. That's where the word ecology, you know, as a field of study emerges from. Um, and that we must understand the complexity of our relationship rather than just the extractive capacity of us to get the most productivity out of the land at the expense of understanding ourselves as being nested and entwined in every level of reality. And so from the agrarian perspective, um, oh, that's a shame, Cynthia. Okay, well, it's being recorded and she can't hear me. Okay. From this agrarian perspective, and Wendell Berry expresses it, he's so eloquent. Uh, what page was I on? Just a second. A concern for patterns complicates a concern for straight ahead agricultural production. These patterns of relationship of how the world recapitulates from the subatomic all the way to the cosmic and how everything is interrelated. Barry notes a reciprocating connection in the pattern of the farm that is biological rather than industrial and that involves solutions to problems of fertility, soil husbandry, economics, sanitation, the whole complex of problems whose proper solutions add up to health, the health of the soil, the health of the plants and animals, the health of the farm and the farmer, the health of the farm family and farm community, all involved in the same internested, interlocking pattern or patterns of pattern, pattern of patterns. So the goal, as Barry expresses it, is health. Now, what is the Hebrew word for that? Shalom. Your, sh your shalom, shalom means well-being. And it also means, shlemut means wholeness. Um, and so um, if the goal is shalom, which is a dynamic, interconnected awareness of the well-being of all, then we're speaking in the language of contemporary agrarians and the language of the writers of the Torah. The writers of the Torah are writing in that way, especially Leviticus. So what I wanna do is um, share some examples. Um, from the text that point us towards that analogy of holiness, shalom meaning peace and holiness meaning kedusha, meaning, meaning that state in which the divine presence can dwell. That's what holiness means. Holiness is the state or awareness or condition in which we sense the divine. We sense the presence of 
Uh, I want to come up with a good word. We sense the interpenetrating presence that connects all levels of existence. That's the goal of the Torah. And so let me give you a couple of examples. Um, and it'll be, I'm not going in a straight line. <laughs> let me share the screen and start with one. Um, okay, let me look at my notes here. Ah, okay. So here is our Parsha. Let's go to verse nine. Move this box on my screen. Uvekutzrachem et ketzir artzachem lo techale peat sadcha liktzo velekek zircha lo tlake. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. I'm sure many of us are familiar with this command. Nor shall you pick your vineyard bare or gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I, Yudhei am your God. Okay, so we know this is the instruction so that the gleaners, the folks who have no land of their own, will be ensured the possibility of a harvest. You don't you don't cut, you don't reap all the way to the corners of your fields. You leave some of the corners. And the Talmud is very clear about this. This is one of the mitzvahs that has no upper limit. It's a beautiful saying. There's a whole list of, 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 of um, behaviors that have no upper limit in, in the Mishnah. And one of them is that you could, you could define your corners of the field all the way into the middle. There's no limit to how much of your corners you should leave, um, which I just love that. It's not, a, it's not a measurement, it's a quality of behavior. Okay, so that word, pe'at, the edges, okay? If you pronounce that with an Ashkenazi accent, payas, right, payas. So the side curls, right, everyone? That's because in this verse, 10 verses later, no, 20 verses later in the same chapter, there's this mysterious, um, am I in the right verse? 19, yeah, here we go. Lo takifu pe'at roshechen. You men shall not round off the side growth on your head or destroy the side growth of your beard. Same word. Okay. So I'll go back to the text later. So not only has this as a commandment never made any sense to me. Okay. What a weird custom. Never made any sense until you think about it analogically. The corners of your field, which you leave for the poor and the stranger, 
and the corners of your head and beard. If the body is an analogy for the land and vice versa, then you are mapping on your male body a mitzvah. And to the listeners in ancient times, this would have been natural, self-evident as the relationship between sharing your resources and how you map your body. Does that make sense, everybody? Isn't that cool? If that was the only example, I might be a little um, skeptical. They're all over the place. As soon as you start looking for it, it's one of those, it's just one of those things that you don't see it until you know how to look for it. Um, and I don't take credit for this. I'm grateful to these authors for pointing me in this direction. Let's see, uh, Joan said, what a great phraseology, the interpenetrating. Did I say that or did I read it? Yeah, you, you said something about the in, interpenetrating nature of, and I kept listening, but I was like- Well, was Joan, the good mind. news is this is all being recorded and it's posted on the website tomorrow. So you'll be able to listen to it again. Hmm. I've never been able to, um, it, but I will. Right to, right to Karen Levine, it's not hard. You go to sharings, you click on this week's teaching, you'll figure it out. Okay. I'm just getting, when you say analogic, you know, the analogy, par parallel imagery. Um, it's all, po it's poetic imagination. Yeah. And you're mapping it on your body and the land. And uh, so that the same thing that Mary Douglas actually writes about, which I'm not going into today because this partial doesn't deal with sacrifices. She does a whole riff on how the sacrificed animal's body, you know how in the sacrifice, in the sacrificial instructions in previous chapters earlier in the book, it describes, here's what you do with the liver. Here's what you do with the suet, the fat between the organs. Here's what you do with it. And she does this tour de force of indicating that this is a symbolic map. The animal's body becomes a symbolic map of also the holiness, the levels of holiness in the community. Totally wonderful stuff. Um, and Sarah says, wow, gives me more acceptance of payas. If only we all understood why we're doing these things. I think this is probably why. If we can learn to read it this way. And it's like why you tie a string around your finger or why someone puts a particular tattoo on their body to remember, you know, it's the same idea, except that it's culture wide. And uh, we don't, we've lost that connection to the land, to the, as um, uh, Ellen Davis says, the embodied imagination. So let me give you another example. Um, let me see. Ah, I'll be interested in your insights about this. Um, here's an interesting verse from this week's portion. Hold on, let me find it. 
again, with the idea of mapping on our bodies. Um, I think it's a little earlier. Ah, yes. First, 24. When you enter the land and plant any tree for food, any fruit tree or nut tree, you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be even forbidden for you not to be eaten. But let's see what the words are in Hebrew. When you enter the land, any, and plant trees that produce food. The araltem or lato et perio shaloshanim yelachem arelim lo yechel. Okay, anybody remember what an orla is? Um, arel. It's a. It's what we would normally translate as foreskin. Because. When a baby is, boy is circumcised, you remove his orla, the foreskin on the penis. But here, there's something about fruit trees in the, and remember, whenever it says, kitavo el ha'aretz, it's very important that land is crucial. You can't be holy and not have a holy land. So somehow it's our, and our unholiness all over the Torah leads to the defilement of the land. So again, if we don't think of this in magical terms, but rather than in agrarian terms, yes, that's true. When we defile ourselves through our behavior that doesn't include the presence of the creator in all we do, our attempts to establish wholeness and holiness, we do defile the land. And that, so in that embodied way, we're inevitable, our behavior is inevitably connected to the land. It's not a magical punishment that the land's gonna spit us out, which is what it says later in the portion. It's just a consequence of our defilement. So I wanna show you the other places in the Torah where this word arel or la, which translated as foreskin in reference to circumcision is used. In Jeremiah, it says, Jeremiah is chastising the people and saying, hine or la oznam velo yochlu for their ears are stopped up or covered over or sheathed and they are not able to listen. And then in Deuteronomy, Moses says, Umaltem et orlat levavchem. Cut off the orla from around your hearts and stiffen your necks no more. And then, of course, in um, uh, Moses says, Ani arel svatayim. And it gets translated as, I am uncircumcised of lips in the old translation. Like, whatever that means. How will Pharaoh ever listen to me? So, our orla has to do with something that's 
stopping you. That's covering your ears, covering your heart, covering your lips, and sheathing the male, uh, the male genital as well, as well. But it also refers to fruit trees. So we have to put on our poetic minds to try to, that's the only way we're going to get a feel for what's going on here. That the embodiment on ourselves as well as on our land. Um, and I don't have a, I don't have like a, the, the zinger for this one, but now I'm thinking about it. Okay, fruit trees, three years, you do not harvest the fruit essentially. Um, it's not, it's covered up. It's um, not, it, and only in the fourth year do you harvest the fruit. But in the fourth year, as it says here in verse 25, you set it aside for jubilation before Adonai. And then only in the fifth year may you use its fruit that its yield to you may be increased. I am Yodhei your God. It makes me think about what kind of land-based, experience-based awareness and understanding the um, Israelites had for how to treat their fruit trees. But it also makes me think about that the, the cutting off of the foreskin is the symbol of the covenant with God, it, with yud heh vav -Hey. So somehow, and again, I'm looking forward to, if any of you have ways to word this, somehow, the mapping on the human body, again, this is the male body, and onto our landscape that feeds us, are all, we're supposed to know, we're supposed to know something that we put on our flesh. Does that make sense, everyone? Let me uh, stop sharing again so I can see our nice faces again. Um, I, what I can say, is that our reduction of the language, well, orla means foreskin. So we have an uncircumcised lips, uncircumcised. It's like, no, something, we gotta think, we gotta get bigger than that. Uh, for what this taking off this sheath allows us and enables us to do in terms of connecting with the divine, whether it's over our heart, over our ears, our generative organs, the land itself. Um, so that's that that that's what I wanted to share about that. The language speaks to us in an analogical way. Um, and then now I can get into now that we've kind of warmed up, I can get into the thorniest part of trying to read this for modern readers. Chapter 18, which is the chapter before this magnificent holiness code, love your neighbor as yourself. And chapter 20, which is the one right after it, make a sandwich, bookends to this climax of love your neighbor as yourself. 
But when you read chapter 18 and chapter 20, they're all about forbidden sexual relationships, incest especially, and all the ways that, um, all the ways you're not uh, allowed to interact with your women, right? This is a text that speaks to men and there are all of these restrictions about what acceptable versus unacceptable sexual relationships are. And um, it's hard to read. It's like, why is it here? One of the things I learned from Mary Douglas, so I wanna make a couple of points approaching this and then dig in. I was reading in, um, hold on a sec, in the um, New Yorker, a column by Jill Lepore about the uh, leaked Roe v. Wade document, in which, of course, women as persons are there don't exist going right. Let me read you this paragraph and I'll explain why. Within a matter of months, women in about half of the United States may be breaking the law if they decide to end the pregnancy. This will be in large part because Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito is surprised that there is so little written about abortion in a 4,000 word document crafted by 55 men in 1787. As it happens, there is also nothing at all in that document which sets out fundamental law about pregnancy, uteruses, vaginas, fetuses, placentas, menstrual blood, breasts, or breast milk. There is nothing in that document about women at all. Most consequentially, there is nothing in that document or in the circumstances under which it was written that suggests its authors imagined women as part of the political community embraced by the phrase, we the people. There were no women among the delegates to the Constitutional Convention. There were no women among the hundreds of people who participate in ratifying conventions in the states. There were no women judges. There were no women legislators. At the time, women could neither hold office or run for office, and women could not vote. Legally, most women did not exist as persons. Um, Women, and then she goes on, women are indeed missing from the constitution. That's a problem to remedy, not a precedent to honor. Um, and I read that because it's on everyone's mind, but also, as you know by now, that is my and, my, and the liberal Judaism's orientation to Torah. The fact that Torah is patriarchal is a situation to be remedied by our advancing understanding of who's a human being, not something to be um, Linus. That is by Jill Lepore, L-E-P-O-R-E, -E, in online in the New Yorker. Um, it's a great article, but then I can only read so many articles right now since. So I chose hers because I thought it was so to the point. Uh, and of course, she's very sarcastic, sardonic in the way she talks about how 
how isn't it something how astonished Samuel Alito is that he can't find anything about women in the Constitution. Um, but that's the point in the Torah as well. Having said that, I want to go back to what in their patriarchal mindset, the analogy would have been. It is clear to me in reading the episodes about women, whether it's Miriam or anyone else um, metaphorically in the Torah, that just as women were both the property and responsibility of men in that system, Israel is considered the property and spouse of God. We are the Israel in the analogical way of understanding this is, um, uh, is the wife. The, because the wife is not God's equal. The wife is under God's protection and is wedded in a covenantal relationship, but ha has no standing compared to God. We're not God's equals. We are God's wife. And so um, the Torah is preoccupied with preserving the monogamous, exclusive, and uh, sacred relationship between Israel and God. And if Israel goes after other gods, it is whoring after other gods. It is an adulterous, we are an adulterous wife. We are a harlot, we have been gone into being coming harlots for other gods. And so all the sexual language of the Torah is a metaphor based on the social structure of the time for what it means to preserve a holy relationship. And then it says, so I'm gonna look at chapter, let me find the right, um, the right verse that I wanted. Oh, there it is. Okay. I'm gonna share the screen again. Here we are in the chapter 18, which comes right before the holiness laws. And it says, After a long list, do not have carnal relations with any beast and defile yourself thereby. Likewise, for a woman, she not lend herself to a beast to mate with. It is perversion. This is the end of a long list, including a prohibition against homosexuality, um, including a prohibition against child sacrifice, which, was, which is understood to have been extant in those parts of the world, including adultery, including menst menstrual periods, including it's so much stuff. And it's like, God forbid, when a kid gets this Parsha, ay, 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 what am I going to do with this, you know? But if we understand it analogically, because then it says, <clears throat> do not defile yourselves in any of those ways. 
for it is by such that the nations that I'm casting out before you defile themselves. And here's the key verse. Thus the land became defiled. And I called it to account for its iniquity and the land spewed out. Tika, taki, that actually means vomit. The land spewed out its inhabitants. You must keep my laws and my rules and not do any of those abhorrent things, either the citizen or the stranger who resides among you. For all those abhorrent things were done by the people who were in the land before you, and the land became defiled. So now it's clear from this perspective of the Torah that human sin and humans humans um, uh, exceeding the boundaries of what are considered sacred relationships by this ancient patriarchal system actually defile the earth itself. And that's where when you think about it, and that's why in the story of Noah, it says the land had become, the people, the people behaved horribly, they had illicit sexual relations, um, they uh, filled the land with violence and the land was defiled. And God feels like the only solution is to cleanse the land and start over. That happens in Noah. So this is a fundamental understanding of humans' relationship to the earth, we actually defile it with our behavior. And again, from the agrarian perspective, this is true. We, but because we have exceeded blatantly and willfully and without any concern for the well being of the relationships that we have with the earth, because we have done that for so long without any concern for what might be right relations, the land has become defiled and will spit us out. If we were living with an awareness of our nestedness and interconnection with all that is, then our relationships would be sacred in the same sense that the earth, God has a sacred relationship with us and the earth. And so um, somehow human behavior becomes an analogy of defilement and abomination becomes an analogy for the defilement and um, uh, um, raping of the earth. For the biblical writer, these are self-evidently connected. And then as I put it in my imagination, how I treat others is gonna be an expression of how I treat the earth. Whether I walk with humility or with arrogance, you know, with a sense of entitlement, or a sense of gratitude, all of that plays itself out on every level of experience. 
Now, what does it mean for us to, um, uh, as Jill Lepore was saying, to, to treat this document, the Torah, as a beginning point rather than an end point? That's our job. But the, so we don't necessarily, we won't necessarily have the same analogical mapping as our ancestors did in the Torah. But the principle is strong here for me, uh, that holiness is somehow contingent on us understanding this on every level of experience. Um, here's another quote from Ellen Davis in the book I'm reading. Only by constant mindfulness of the holy in its varying intensities can this people live fittingly on the land with which it is entrusted. Now, what she's talking about there is that when you look at the different expressions of holiness in the description of the Torah, there's the holy of holies, which is like, you know, the, the, the place where God's presence is strongest, but then again, analogically radiating out from that, the holiness recapitulates on every level of our experience. And so we have to have constant mindfulness of the holiness, the holy in its varying intensities so that we can live fittingly on the land with which we have been entrusted. Um, I'm just looking at my notes. Ah, yes. So when it says in chapter 19, verse 29, let me share that again. Nineteenth. Oh, I see it's a different verse. Do not degrade your daughter and make her a harlot lest the land fall into harlotry, harlotry and the land be filled with depravity. And so Ellen Davis looks at this verse and does a fascinating thing with it. She asks, how does abuse of the one resemble abuse of the other, the daughter and the land? And she says, the holiness code is addressed to the average Israelite, someone who would consider selling a daughter into prostitution only as a last desperate measure, seeing no other way for any member of the family to survive. Not surprisingly, the social situation that must underlie the biblical prohibition has its industrial counterpart in our culture. And then she goes on to describe sex tourism, all the ways that women are used for financial gain. But then she says, no parent makes a free decision 
to sell a child into prostitution. Any more than a farmer makes a free decision to prostitute the land for small, short-term gain. In the deepest sense, those decisions are made by a culture that in its economic aspect is characterized by what the Torah calls zima, which means depravity, which connotes both depraved acts and the sickness of mind and imagination that generates them. I thought that was brilliant. Here we are reading the Torah and it says, as, as I just read, do not sell your daughter into harlotry. And then you have to think, who would do that, right? Are the Israelites busy selling their daughters into harlotry? Really? Do we have that low an estimation of a good society or even a functional society? And what she points out in, those in the beautiful language she uses is that the daughter and the land are alike in, the, in that we wouldn't be forced to do this if we weren't in severe economic distress, maybe starving. And then you put your mind back to all the laws of the Torah. You must leave the corners of your field. You must not, you must provide for the poor and the widow and the orphan and the stranger. The laws that are repeated over and over and over again that would allow for the economic security that would allow us to have enough breathing room to treat the land as a precious child, to experience our need and connection for all. Blaise said, if we take care of one another so that all have what they need, these actions would not be necessary. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yudhebab. So everything around it climaxes at that phrase. Holiness, to be a holy people, will then resonate to all our relationships, to our relationship with the environment, everywhere, on every level. We will be aware of the holy if we can do that. And I knew this would be hard to put into words, but it's coming out fairly clearly. This sense that loving your neighbor as yourself is not some specific act that you can separate from your entire connection to life. In fact, to be a holy people as we're instructed means that we think of, that we live our lives as part of the whole. Holiness comes in its English root from W-H-O-L-E, right? That's why the word holistic and whole, W-H-O, they're the same root word. Holiness is wholeness. And wholeness is not linear. Wholeness is systemic. Extractive agriculture, agribusiness, Profit motive as the highest goal, the use of others for higher profits. All of that is linear, 
extractive and unconnected to wholeness. Focused on short-term results rather than long-term harmony and sustainability. And so that's that message of our indigenous ancestors, thanks to some brilliant scholars who said, wait, don't look at it this way. We can't read this in a linear or scholarly fashion. We have to read it in a poetic way. At that point, we will be able to experience self, world, land, everything as part of one, a, a part of interlocking and interdependent spheres. God is one, says Blaze, wholeness. So I actually humbly think, but excitedly, that I'm getting closer to understanding the text uh, than I was before, and I wanted to share it with you today. So thank you for letting me uh, spin this out. I think the same thing is true with Native Americans. Yes. How, they, how they feel about the land, because if they have a ski resort, they will not use artificial snow. For example, because, yeah. yes, yes, the, the, the indigenous American cultures uh, have much to teach us. Uh, okay, Vicki, thank you. Everybody who has to go, I'm going to end the recording and wish you all well. Anyone who wants to stay and do a prayer for healing, we'll do that next.